Romans 8, and I know we've been here for quite a period of time now. We're just looking at so many great, wonderful truths concerning the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And the entire chapter, as I said before, is about our eternal security. What, what it means to be saved. What it means to possess the person of the Holy Spirit who's a guarantee of the promise of uh, life, eternal life for us. And now we're coming to the end of this uh, chapter. Uh, again, I hope you've been encouraged by it. I have. Uh, I, I continue to glean much from it as I've taught it before, but it's been just, been just a joy for me to teach through it again. And the concluding thought that uh, this final great discourse on our eternal security, uh, the fact that once we're saved, you can't lose your salvation, I think probably at least in part begins in verse 28. So why don't we look there, we'll just dive in there and we'll work our way forward. Verse 28, Romans 8. says Paul says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He says everything that happens in our life, no matter what it is, that God uses or God causes to work to our eternal glory because that's his purpose for us in Christ. Think about that. Uh, God's purpose for us in Christ is eternal glory. He's going to bring us to eternity. Verse 29 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the images of, uh, to the image of his Son, that he might be, Christ might be the firstborn or, or the preeminent one, the premier one uh, among many brethren. So God's purpose in our salvation is not only eternity, but that we'd be brought all the way where we would look like Christ, being conformed to the image of Christ uh, in eternal glory. Verse 30 says, "He, Whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So in the eternal mind of God, who again stands outside of time, our salvation, our eternal future, our eternal glory is an already, if I can say it like this, an already done deal in his mind. It's already been accomplished. Verse 30 really is the great summation of the eternal security of the believer. Uh, Again, it talks about the plans and the purposes of God to choose uh, the eternal destiny of those whom he calls. And then to make sure that they are justified and glorified as uh, individuals. So again, they may become the very image of his dear son in his presence forever. So again, everything in our life is being used by God to that end. Everything, good things, bad things. Righteous things, sinful things. God is working them all out to our ultimate glory. And that really sums the whole thing up. And what Paul has already stated is pretty much everything there is to say, but uh, concerning our eternal salvation, our eternal security, uh, the fact that our salvation can never be threatened, it can never come to an end, it can never be forfeited or removed or taken away. But he knows that although he said everything there really is to say, he knows there are going to be some people who would object to that. There's some people who may raise an, an objection or a question. So what Paul's doing is, is, is he is anticipating the answers uh, and, and uh, anticipating the question and then answering the questions in advance, all the possible questions and objections uh, to eternal security of our salvation. Uh, some theologians, when they come to this final conclusion here in chapter 8, really see it as a modified doxology because it really is praising uh, the, the work of God and the work of Christ uh, all the day long as we just sang. It's an anthem of praise to God. So again, this doctrine of eternal security or eternal salvation is not new. It's something that Paul started all the way back in chapter 5 when he talked about the great realities, uh, begin to talk about the great realities that come with our justification. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God, right? We talked about that this morning. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've attained introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. So it's just a tremendous truth that he's working forward all the way through and, again, answering questions, objections that people 
uh, put forward. Uh, again, you get here into verse 31. Again, he, uh, he's uh, anticipating that some people are going to argue. And you've heard it yourself, I'm sure, that uh, people argue that a genuine believer can lose their salvation. So he, he begins to answer those objections. And as we worked our way through this material uh, up to this point, I told you there's only two possible categories, uh, if you will, two areas that a person could potentially lose uh, their salvation. Either someone, uh, something a person does, or the second category, something uh, that happens to us in life by way of circumstance. So the questions are, can a person cause you to lose your salvation, or can certain circumstances cause you to lose your salvation? And again, that's what we've been working our way through for some quite, quite some time now. Uh, verses uh, 31 to 34 answer the question, can you lose your salvation by the influence of a person? And then the concluding verses that we're going to work our way through tonight, 35 through 39, answer the question, can you lose your salvation by some kind of influence or, uh, of a circumstance? Can you lose your salvation by the influence of a circumstance? So again, just kind of picking up by a little bit of a review here. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? Remember I told you these things... Um, really is all the things Paul has said so far concerning our salvation, at least uh, here in the chapter, and I think probably earlier, but all the things, at least here in the chapter, the certain air of our salvation. How do we react to these things? What shall we say to these th- things? Again, what's our response to the top of the chapter, uh, uh, 8 verse 1? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, what do we say to that kind of tremendous truth, right? How do we respond to the fact, verse 28, that God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose? How do we react to the great grand truth for those whom he foreknew he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son? And those whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and those whom he justified, these he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? And again, as we've seen so far, it's really an utter impossibility in the light of the reality of these things. It's really an utter impossibility for anyone to cause us to lose our salvation, our eternal salvation. Why? Because the answer comes next in the next phrase, if God's for us, who's against us? If God's for us, who is against us? Who's stronger than God? Who can oppose God? And then he adds this in verse 32, if God's for us, and who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Or <clears throat> how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If he's given us the greater, remember I told you there's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If he's already, already given us the greater thing, that being his son, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, will he not also take care of the lesser? If he secured our eternal salvation, won't he take care of us in time really is the argument. Then again, he just keeps piling these questions on, right? Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God's chosen, God's eternally loved. He says, since God is the one who justifies. God is the one, the ultimate ruler of the universe, the supreme judge of the universe, who declares not guilty not guilty and positively righteous in, in Christ. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 34, the question is, who's the one who condemns? And remember, I told you that's really a, a summons, if you will, from the bar, from, from the court, the Supreme Court. Who? Somebody step forward. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring a charge against the one whom God has already declared not guilty and positively righteous in Christ? I'll sit down and wait. Loose paraphrase, but that's what he's saying in the margin, right? Who? Who's the one who condemns? 
Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, is he who died, yes. Rather, he's the one who was raised. He's the one who is right now seated at the right hand of God, uh, who also intercedes for us or ministers to us in the exo- out of the inexhaustible treasures of his own glory. Since God's for us, who can possibly be against us? And again, the answer is obviously no one. Again, Jesus Christ died. Uh, when he died, atonement was made. He secured our salvation. He was raised from the dead. We know because of Romans chapter 4, verse 25, therefore that means that we are now justified. That's why God delivered him up because of our transgression and raised him from the dead because we're justified. Now he's seated at the right hand. We talked about that a little bit this morning also, meaning that his work as the intercessor is done. It's finished. Our, our great high priest has finished his work. Christ has done it all. There's nothing else to be done. Therefore, he's seated at the right hand of God. He's seated in a position of honor and power. Uh, he, his, his work of securing our salvation is finished. He's now invested with universal dominion. Therefore, no one can possibly stand between us and our eternal salvation because, again, we've been declared by the supreme judge of the universe just. And again, given the imputed righteousness of Christ, uh, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, and again, because we are just in Christ, back to the top of the chapter, there is now what? Therefore, no condemnation. Remember I told you, don't be listening to these guys who get on the Internet and think they're theologians and try to tell you that you can lose your salvation. And if you just donate to my, to my ministry, I can tell you how. It's just nonsense. That's why James says not many of you be teachers because you're going to incur a stricter judgment. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because there's no condemnation, he's going to fin- Paul's going to finish up the chapter by saying that there's now no separation from the love of God in Christ. Again, he's saying we're safe, eternally secure in Christ. Now, as we read through these last few uh, verses here, I hope you've noticed the we and the us, and they're kind of uh, laid in there often. Uh, again, Paul uses the kind of personal pronouns to describe us. This is who we are as God's elect. This is us who are beneficiaries of the richness of, of God's mercy and his grace to us in Christ. Because of his great love uh, for us, he has bought us. He has not only bought us, but he's bought us, but he's brought us into his family so that we can enjoy him and dwell with him forever and all, for all of eternity. So again, Paul has really established in our previous studies, if you've been a part of it, he's really established the fact that it's utterly impossible for anyone to separate us from the love of God in Christ. So now the apostle is going to turn his attention to the last possible category, the second category, up to the point, up to this point that he hasn't addressed. So if no one or no person could ever remove us from the love of God in Christ, what about circumstances? What about things? Are, are there any things that might be able to remove us from the love of God found in the person of Jesus Christ? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor uh, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, verse 35, who shall separate us? From the love of Christ. The word who in the Greek could be translated who, which, or what. And although though the word has been translated uh, in the last two verses as who, it probably seems better to translate it 
uh, here uh, more accurately as what? Because that's what the, that's the list that Paul is looking at here in verses uh, uh, 35 to 37. He, he, it's a list of things, you know, really a list of impersonal things that, that might be able to separate us from the love of, of Christ, not people. Um, I'm not going to beg the issue on uh, persons, but not people. Uh, angels are persons, personages, right? But but it's probably better uh, categorized uh, uh, as what? What shall separate us? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? So then the apostle is going to give seven things in this list. He says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Shall any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? Now, uh, unpleasant things in life, dangerous things in life, dangerous situations in life, they could be detrimental to our faith. They could uh, cause us to doubt when things get difficult. But can any of these things, any of these circumstances in life really cause us to be separated from the love of Christ? So what if we experience difficulties in life? What if we have difficult circumstances, trials? Again, can we be separated somehow in the midst of those difficulties from the love of Christ? What if we fail? What if, what if we fail? What if we fall away? What, what if we, because of these difficulties in, in, uh, of, uh, of, uh, in life or difficulties of being a follower of Christ, can we fail ourselves? Can these circumstances arise and we fail ourselves and we separate ourselves from the love of Christ because of how poorly we endure tough times? So Paul anticipates that. He anticipates that line of questioning, that line of reasoning. And then he, again, is going to refute the notion that any kind of circumstance possibly, no matter how severe, could ever cause a true believer, a genuine believer, to forfeit his or her salvation. He says, again, utterly it's impossible. It's utterly impossible to dislodge us or to remove us from the realm of God's grace. It's utterly impossible for us to separate ourselves from the love of Christ. And note that phrase there, the love of Christ. That phrase there, the love of Christ, is, is the love that belongs to us, that belo- is given to us, or it's Christ's love to us. It's Christ's love for us. It's his love. Donald Gray Barnhouse A pastor a long time ago at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia said this. He said, The love of Christ was eternal, for it was the love which moved him to leave heaven's throne and come down to this earth to redeem us. That love was deep, for it was that love which urged him onto the end of the road as he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. That love was broad, he says, for it was that love which opened his arms or the arms of God to all the world of sinners and made it possible for the very ones who nailed him to the cross to be forgiven and come back to the Father's heart. That love was unchanging, for it was that love which comes to us today in the midst of our need, whatever it may be, and takes us out of the darkest of the darkness into the light and from doubt to certainty and from death to life. That love is presented to us in this phrase, the love of Christ. And in it, he says, God stoops to tell us that Christ's love is not fickle. He says, what amazing condescension, condescension, such a verse should be in the Bible. The Lord leaves heaven, comes down to the earth. He allows himself to be led to judgment where he is buffeted and spat upon. He walks to Calvary and permits men to nail him to a cross. And from that cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We see these things happen, and he tells us they have happened for us. We look upon him with amazement and wonder if he really means it. And then he smiles at us and tells us that he really does mean it that he really does love us, that nothing, nothing can separate us from that love. Isn't that good? Can we feel? Yeah, sure, we do. Are we weak? Yep, we are. Are we frail? Yeah. 
But can we, during the difficulties of life, can we ourselves separate ourselves from the love of Christ? Again, remember I told you these questions are rhetorical questions. Questions to gain a response from us uh, in the negative. Absolutely not. We might fail, but our failure, our our success, even in the face of the times of trials of life, that's not the issue. The issue on the table is the love of Christ, Christ's love for us. So again, that phrase, the love of Christ, speaks not of our love for him, but his love for us, Christ's love for us, Christ's love towards us. So what shall separate us from the love of Christ? What shall separate us from the love of Christ that has eternally taken hold of us? What has what will separate us from the love of Christ that has eternally called us into his fellowship? What can pull us away from the eternal, deep, broad, unchanging love of Christ? And, and again, by asking the question, he's really anticipating or trying to lead the the here to a negative. He's trying to remind us by asking that question, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? He's trying to remind us of the truth that nothing can separate us from the love of the truth or from the, from the love of Christ. Because the love of Christ, again, doesn't depend upon us. It doesn't depend on our circumstances. It doesn't depend on how we respond to our circumstances. It depends on him. It's his love for us. The issue on the table is Jesus Christ. He's the issue. His love for us is the issue. Not our performance in time of crisis. Not our performance in the struggle. And that's good news, amen, is it not? That's tremendous news. We've got to start thinking as biblical Christians. Not cultural Christians, biblical Christians. We've got to start thinking as uh, um, biblical Christians, not as quasi-Catholics. Roman Catholics. Well, yeah, a lot of a lot of Christians I meet think of themselves, or I listen to them speak, they speak more like a Roman Catholic than they do like an evangelical. Because they're always talking to me about what they've done and what they haven't done, and I'm so upset with my life because I've fallen short here, and I've done... Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, me too. How about we not look at ourselves? How about we stop talking to ourselves about how bad we are, and we start talking to ourselves the truth, as I often say, and we start talking to ourselves about how great and grand the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is, and we're obedient to the Scripture, and we start looking up. To where our hope comes from, where our help comes from. Try harder. I mean, you should. But you're trying harder isn't the issue on the table. It's the love of Christ. He's the issue. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Again, it doesn't depend on us. It's Christ's love for us. And what kind of a love is this? It's an eternal love. For those whom he's glorified. Those whom he has foreknown. Those whom he's predestined. Those whom he's called. Those whom he's justified. Again, in the mind of God, those whom he has already glorified. It is an eternal love. An eternal love that is already proven in time. How do you know that? Because I read Romans 5. Romans 5 verse 5 says, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Here it is. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps a good man. Some would dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. And while we were yet... You read that verse. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? It's a done deal. It's not about us. Verse 10 of Romans 5. While we were enemies, we reconciled God to the death of his son. Much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What? 
shall separate us from the love of Christ. So again, the argument here is that Christ has already done this for us. Christ has already made peace, reconciliation, while we were yet sinners, while we were blasphemers, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were sons of disobedience, living and indulging in uh, living in and indulging in the lust of our flesh and our mind when we were by nature children of wrath, how can what God has done from eternity into time, how can there anything possibly now separate us from that love in time present? Because Christ has already loved us. He loved us when we weren't lovely. He's proven that love for us. And the power of Christ's love has a hold on us. And again, that love, the love of Christ guarantees our continuance in that love. So again, that phrase, the love of Christ here, really refers to salvation. And again, the question is, is there any circumstance in life that is powerful enough for a true believer to turn away from Christ to such an extent that he would turn away from him finally, where he would turn and lose his salvation? And again, it's a rhetorical question. And again, the rhetorical question, the answer is so obvious, it really doesn't even uh, demand a response, but the answer obviously is no. Absolutely not. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Again, the question is asked in order that we might consider and be reminded and just to be encouraged by how permanent, how powerful Christ's love really is for us. I mean, Christ loves us. Christ died for us. Christ shed his eternal blood for us. He loved us first while we were yet sinners. He became the propitiation for our sin. He removed God's wrath. He became our substitute, our sin bearer. He took upon himself our punishment. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, I keep asking the question again because it has to be answered. Again, the response is in the negative. Christ's love is the issue. What about tribulation, he says? Shall tribulation... The word means pressing together, pressure. Uh, Metaphorically, it's affliction, tribulation, distress, trials. I think the NIV says trouble. It's a term, tribulation, it's a term for general affliction. It comes from a word that, uh, of an instrument that was used to drag over stalks of grain and press them down and squeeze out all the grains from the chaff. So again, it's a picture that has a vivid, uh, it's a word that has a vivid picture and the idea of being pressed down, placed under pressure. A severe adversity, if you want. A severe adversity that's common to all men. It could be anything in life. I mean, there's lots of them, right? The loss of a job, the diagnosis of a a severe illness, uh, the death of a loved one, divorce, etc., and so on. And you may be struggling because of the pressures of the tribulations of life. You may be doubting. Your, Your ability to hang in there is almost gone, and you're tired and you're weak. But Paul says, however severe your tribulation might be, nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. What about distress? Stenokorea is the word. It means narrowness. It's made up of two words, narrow and space. It's similar to the idea behind tribulation of being pressed down, but it's a little bit different in in that it is being confined to a narrow space. Uh, uh, The idea is kind of being helplessly hemmed in if you will, helplessly hemmed in by your situations, your circumstances in life. Uh, Again, I think the NIV translates this as hardship. And obviously, if you go through life long enough, you know there's all kinds of hardships in life. You go through life and there's all kinds of distress. 
It could be a job situation. And somebody works for a company for uh, many years, and then all of a sudden you get laid off and your, or your company goes bankrupt. And now you're having a difficult time finding a job that pays anywhere close to what you were making previously, and there's a stress from trying to take care of the family and pay the bills on the mortgage, and you might come to a situation where you might have to move, uproot your family. Or you take, for instance, a woman who's in her late 30s and her husband's left her, divorced her, and she's got several young children and she's still trying to care for them. She has to work two jobs just to make it. She has no time or energy for herself. She has no time to do quote-unquote fun things with her friends. And she does. She knows that just her life is going to be a continual uh, existence in the realm of just taking kids to school, going to the first job, picking the kids up from school, dropping them off to the babysitter, going to the next job, shopping late, staying up late, doing the housework and the laundry, and they get up the next day and start the thing all over again. Her life is confined, hemmed into this situation. Or the elderly lady who breaks her hip. Up to that moment, she's fine. She breaks her hip. Now she has to have surgery. She has to go to a to a home because she needs assistance. And her adult children don't live in town. There's no one else to help her. So she has to go to a nursing home. Again, before the accident, she's a right mind, independent. She doesn't want to be there, but her hip is forcing her to stay there because she needs that help. She's therefore in this condition and she's lonely. Got to be a certain sense of fear. Maybe she's going to spend the rest of her life there. And everybody in the nursing home bosses her around. They tell her when to get up. They tell her when to go to sleep. They tell her what she's going to eat. They tell her what she will eat, when she's going to eat, and what she's going to eat. She feels like a prisoner. She's all of a sudden lost her freedom. Her circumstances are pressing her down. She's being confined, hemmed in by the situation. Uh, I mean, go on and on. I mean, those, those kind of stories are common in a fallen world, right? Hardship, distress. What do you do in those kind of situations? Now, the answer is simple but profound uh, and uh, practically uh, difficult for most people. What do you do when life has you hemmed in? You take your eyes off of yourself, off of your situation, and you look up. You look to the person of Christ. You take your life, your eyes off of your circumstance, and you remember the fact that your God is sovereign. He knows your situation. He's aware of your needs, and you trust and you believe that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. You realize that in the midst of your most adverse circumstances that you cannot change? You realize that? You, you, you trust the truth? You believe the truth? That God loves you in the midst of this circumstance you may not understand or the pressures that you're under, but you know for certain that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God through the person of Jesus Christ. What about persecution? It's a term in the context that's used to uh, refer to affliction and affliction for the sake of Christ. It, it, it's a, the, the idea behind the word is someone is intending to do you harm. And not only are, are they intending to do you harm, but they're relentlessly pursuing you. Now, here in the United States, and for that matter, for the most of the Western world, we, don't have, we have little understanding about physical persecution. But not so many of our brothers and sisters all around the world. Persecution is a reality for many of them. In some parts of the world, when a person admits to being a Christian or a follower of Christ, they're murdered. And sometimes they're murdered by their own family members. And even here, we might face persecution for Christ to a certain extent. I mean, somebody might actually look odd at us. Somebody might give us a little bit of pressure at work, or they might 
consider us weird or strange or uh, label us at school as a Jesus freak. Uh, again, the kind of persecution that we have presently or faced up to this present moment in, in the West has not been much for a follower of Christ. But Timothy, to Timothy, Paul says, to Timothy 3.12, he says, indeed, all who desire in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's coming. It's coming. Jesus, Matthew 10, Matthew 5, verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Persecution is not going to separate us from the love of Christ, no matter what form it comes in. Persecution for the cause of Christ brings blessing because it identifies us with the Savior and identifies us with his godly prophets, his men. But we in the West, we in the United States, had better start preparing ourselves for persecution unlike we've ever seen in our lifetime because it's coming. And then we better start believing, as I said this morning, there's one thing to hear the truth and understand the truth, but to believe the truth, to get it from your head to your heart to your hands and feet, to believe the fact that God is working all things together for our good, right? All things for our good, for his glory. That's what the Bible says. What about famine? Can that separate you from the love of Christ? Famine sometimes comes by or because of persecution. In some parts of the world, when a person admits that they're a Christian, a follower of Christ, they're denied the normal rights that everyone else enjoys. They're cut off. Not allowed to work. Uh, therefore, they have no money. If you don't have any money, you can't buy things. If you can't buy things, you can't even buy food. Many believers have been imprisoned for their faith. Many believers have been starved to death because there's not adequate food or no adequate food. Will famine separate us from the love of Christ? And again, the resounding answer is no. What about nakedness? And, and the word there doesn't mean so much the idea of the state of undress. I really think the idea behind the word is poverty. It may refer to someone so economically deprived that they can't adequately, properly care for themselves or physically provide the clothing they need. But the word kind of contains with it a certain idea of vulnerability or unprotection that, again, could result from persecution from being a Christian. Or maybe it comes by way of natural disaster or war. Will nakedness separate us from the love of Christ? And again, the overwhelming answer is no. What about peril? Oh, danger in the NIV. Uh, when, when trouble comes our way simply because we are Christians, simply because we're being uh, followers of Christ, we're being attacked, beaten, even killed, will peril, excuse me, separate us from the love of Christ? And again, the answer is no. What about the sword? The word's makaria. It's a, a word used to, uh, to describe basically a long knife, a, a dagger. It was the tool of choice for assassins. They could keep it real close to the person that they would shove it into, hidden on their body. So the idea is uh, of death, uh, being murdered because of your faith in Christ. Again, we know that happens. We know it happens around the world. We know it happens uh, happened at the beginning of the church regularly to many members of the other church. Stephen was martyred. James was martyred. So was Paul. All the other apostles except John. God's faithful people have always been persecuted. They've always faced famine. They've all always faced nakedness, peril, and the sword. 
Therefore, in verse 36, which is a quote out of verse uh, Psalm 44:22, Paul says, "Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long; we are considered sheep to be slaughtered." God's faithful people have always been persecuted. Don't be surprised when it comes here. Prepare for it. Prepare your heart. Study the scripture. Know the scripture. Know your God. Memorize scripture. Stand fast. The New Testament doesn't promise Christians a life of ease. The gospel does not promise us a life of health, wealth, and prosperity as the false teachers promote. That's not true. And again, people who call themselves Christians who peddle that kind of stuff are deceived at best and at worst lying to you because, again, health and wealth are not biblical gospel, is not the biblical gospel message. In life, there's going to be difficulties, and in this life, there's going to be trials and problems. And those of us who do believe in Christ, because we are Christians, we will likely face additional troubles. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I'm going to stop for a moment and ask you a question. Do you really think we're going to escape this whole trans craziness? Really? Oh, yeah. Pull my kids out of school. Good. Lock myself up in the house. Good. Turn off the internet. Good. Really good. Do you think you're going to escape it? The world's not going to allow you to escape it. You're going to have to make a decision, just like the young fellows in the book of Daniel who decided they weren't going to defile themselves in advance before they got hauled off into the pagan kingdom. That we're going to take our stand with God, for God, and leave the results up to him and not capitulate. Not give in to the pressure of the day. And, and we could go on. It's not in the sermon notes, but there's all sorts of issues that are coming uh, that are presently here that we're going to have to make a decision. We're going to take a stand for the truth, the word of God, or we're going to cave to the pressure of the culture. We're going to throw you in a furnace, whatever. There's a loose paraphrase. You read it out there in the margin of Daniel, but that's what they said. Whatever. Do what you want to do. We're still not. I don't know if some of you, and I'm kind of going way off here, but have, have you guys read the, uh, there's a new book out by Erwin Lutzer? I, I think it's called No uh, No Time to, somebody help me out. Huh? No, no, no Time to Hide. I think it's No Time to Hide. Uh, pick it up. I'm just starting to thumb my way through it. There, there's a great introduction by H.B. H. Charles, a, 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 a preacher who um, says, I remember when he was a younger guy listening to a, his pastor preach out of the book of Daniel. He doesn't remember anything about the text, but he remembers the, the title. And it was, uh, Don't Be Stooping, S-T-O-O-P-I-N, or whatever apostrophe. Don't be stooping when it's standing time. Right? We're not bound to your idol. We're going to have to take a stand for the truth in the culture, and persecution is going to come for it. But we don't know the results on the other end of taking a stand for the truth. Because, again, it was God in his providence that had Daniel hauled off to, the, to, to Babylon. It was God in his providence that raised Daniel up a couple different times in a couple different empires to represent him. We need to leave the results to God. Persecution is not going to separate us. There's trouble in the world and there's more coming. And die, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted, expect it. 
don't be surprised when we have to endure suffering for the sake of Christ's name, because in reality, we live in a world that hates Christ. Again, we should be preparing our hearts for suffering for Christ with the utmost resolve to stand and not stoop. No compromise. The writer in the book of Hebrews, in fact, speaking of the heroes of the faith, chapter 11, he says it's been true of God's faithful people all along for centuries. Hebrews 11.36, God's people have experienced mocking and scourging and, yes, chains and imprisonment, and they were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They were went about in sheepskin and goatskins and being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world is not worthy, wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. I mean, trials and tribulations come in a fallen world. Trials and tribulations come at the cost of falling Christ because the cost of falling Christ is high. Jesus says, Matthew 10, verse 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not, uh, he who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake, so my sh- sake shall find it. Matthew 10, 22, you'll be hated on account of my name. But the one who's endured to the end, he'll be saved. Whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. John fifteen twenty. Remember the word that I spoke to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. It comes with the territory. How, how do we stand up to all these kind of things? It's it's it, it, it's not possible, is it? How do we stand up under such severe tribulation? How, how, how do we uh, find ourselves in this situation and, uh, and, and would we ever be potentially in a position where we would find ourselves reprobate, where we would fall out of love with uh, the person of Christ or outside of the love of Christ for us? And, and again, verse 37, Paul gives the answer. He says, look, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. And, and all of these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. The NIV says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Uh, Again, a professing Christian who turns his back on Christ and upon the things of God and persistently lives in a life of rebellion and sin, a lifestyle proves that, that lifestyle proves that he never was uh, a part of Christ, never belonged to Christ in the first place. 1 John chapter 2 verse 19 says, they went out from us, they were not really of us, for if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they are not of us. That the Christian stands strong in, in the face of affliction because he's indwelt with the person of the Holy Spirit and he's covered by the love of Christ. A, a person, a Christian that allows circumstances in the world to, to, to habitually, continually keep them from Christ, keep them from the fellowship of God's people, is proving that he doesn't belong to whom he says he belongs. People who turn away from God and Christ in the midst of troubles and never return, haven't really lost their salvation. They've just proved by their actions that they were never Christians in the first place. Because true Christians overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. True Christians endure hardship. The true Christian perseveres. Not because we're strong. Because, again, we're not. The true Christian endures in troubles and hardships and problems in this world because he has the power, again, of the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. The Christian's perseverance under trial 
does not keep his salvation. Rather, it proves his salvation. Proves that there's something supernatural about that person. If you claim to be a follower of Christ and you live your life in the same manner as everybody else around you who is not a believer or doesn't make any such claim, there's nothing that is supernatural about your life in the midst of problems associated with being in this world and specifically those associated with being a Christian, then you probably have to at least consider the possibility you're not a Christian. If you're caving with everybody else around you. Because Christians are overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Paul asks, what will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or peril or sword? He says, just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as a sheep to be led to slaughter. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. The word's hyper-conquer. Right? We are more than conquerors, it says in the NIV. And again, those who overwhelmingly conquer in the midst of all these things show the reality that they are a person who's indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. It shows that a person has been captivated and captured by Christ. It shows and confirms the reality of salvation, that you are trusting Christ, your Savior, even in the midst of the most difficult, trying circumstances that a person can go through. And again, those who are joined with Christ, those who are in Christ, those who have been partakers of Christ or partakers of the divine nature, they have that divine help living in them. Person of the Holy Spirit. It's okay to fear to some extent. It's okay to doubt to some extent. But it's not okay to abandon the faith in a time of difficulty. We need to be people who are standing and not stooping in a perverse, wicked culture that is against God and against Christ and promoting everything that God hates. And again, for those who truly belong to God through Christ, through him who loved us, the promise is God will keep us. God will protect us. God will hold on to you and make sure that you're eternally safe in his everlasting loving arms. Therefore, you can and you will survive any threatening circumstance that's out there. And you will overcome every spiritual uh, obstacle that the world or Satan might throw at you in your direction. Because in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now, look, your, your situation may never change. Your circumstance may not get any better. There may be physical persecution that comes our direction. I keep saying that. Okay, so physical persecution comes our way, and life's hard. I mean, we just read out of, Rome, out of uh, Hebrews 11. I mean, there's been believers before us that have faced a lot of difficult things. Let's say the persecution's so bad, it ends in your death. Okay? Right? Are we going to think biblically, or are we going to think worldly? What's death for the Christian? Paul says to die is what? Gain. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and to be with Christ much better. If you're in Christ, no longer under condemnation and death comes for you, you're going to be immediately ushered in the presence of God in Christ. Rejoice. Rejoice because of him who loved you. 
Rejoice because of the person of Jesus Christ. Because of him, you're going to be ultimately supremely victorious, overcoming everyone and everything that might try to threaten your relationship with Jesus Christ. And again, as Christians, we can face life and whatever it might come or throw our direction in all these things, but we are uh, be more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's who we are. We are more than conquerors, hyper-conquerors. And again, no matter what life throws at us, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's part of the path to glory. Just like we talked about this morning, right? Christ came from glory. He's going back to glory. And the way back to glory is through the cross. That way I have an opportunity. Christ has an opportunity to display his love for the Father to the world. Not just his love for men, but his love for the Father. Don't be stupid in standing time. It's a tremendous... I probably need to find the sermon and listen to it. You know, it's just a tremendous phrase, a concept. What shall we say to these things if God's for us? Who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who is raised and at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril or sword, just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Our eternal reward, our eternal reward is going to far surpass whatever kind of temporal, earthly suffering or loss we might suffer. That's why Paul says in chapter 8, verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed in us. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, For these momentary light afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comprehension or far beyond comparison. So trials, difficulties, troubles come, but those things refine the Christian. And those things remove those things remove what is unnecessary and what is unneeded in our life. And trials and troubles and tribulation cause us as believers to grow closer to Christ, not further away from Him. It's interesting that I think at the time of the letter, Paul writes, the Roman Christians are suffering to some extent, but nothing like what's coming to them in just a few short years. Because under the reign of Nero, they're going to fear, face fierce persecution. The, the sand in the Roman Colosseum is literally going to run red with the blood of Christians, brutally killed either by gladiators or wild beasts. H- history says that Nero dipped live Christians into tar and then placed them on stakes in his garden and lit them on fire to provide light for his garden parties. And I think what you have to do is you have to look at this book and you realize that in the book of Romans here that God in his kindness has providentially provided in advance for these Roman believers truth and hope. He's providing them a comforting word that no matter what might come their way, nothing could ever separate them from the love of Christ. Truth for them, truth for us that we have to believe and hold on to. As I said this morning, we have nothing else to hold on to except the truth. Now Paul's going to come to one final crescendo, if you will, one final climactic 
conclusion. Verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in the strongest language possible, the apostle just keeps all these words together, all these thoughts together in an effort to fully, absolutely declare the utter inability, the utter impossibility of any created thing being able to separate the Christian from the love of God in Christ. The utter inability, impossibility of any created thing uh, being able to thwart or frustrate God's eternal plans for us in Christ. Again, no thing, no one in all of creation can turn away the love of God from those whom he has determined to save. So in verse 38, Paul says, I am convinced. And it's interesting, it's in the passive. It's in the passive voice. I am convinced. Which means that something happened to him. He's not convinced himself. Something has happened. Rather, it's not a something, it's someone that happened to him. That's the issue. Someone convinced him that nothing, whatever, uh, 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 that neither death nor life or hopeless would ever separate him. And, and that someone was the person of Jesus Christ. He, he meets, Saul of Tarsus meets Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus as, as Saul was on his way about persecuting and slaughtering Christians. And then he meets the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And just like everyone who meets the Savior in a saving fashion, his entire life has changed. It's transformed change from whom he used to be into a new creation, new creature in Christ. The Christ who Saul once despised now becomes lovely to him. The Christians whom he once persecuted now become his beloved brethren. The faith, the faith that he once tried to destroy now becomes precious to him, and with such affection they often refer to it as my gospel. My gospel. Not in the sense that I invented it, because he didn't. My gospel revealed to him by the living Lord Jesus Christ. He meets the living Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is proclaimed to him. His life is radically transformed and changed. My gospel. He says, I'm convinced, again, by the personal revelation of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, of the objective love of God for his people, that nothing will be able to ever separate us from that love of God in Christ. Neither death nor life. So again, far from separating the Christian from God, death just ushers the Christian in the very presence of God in Christ. Because again, Christ has defeated death. The supreme enemy uh, of men has been re, uh, done away with. Uh, the supreme enemy of men, ha- Christ has removed that sting from men. Again, life with all of its problems, with all of its attendant issues and difficulties, again, far from separating the Christian from Christ, draws the Christian closer into contact with Christ because Jesus Christ is our good shepherd. He's the one who watches out and cares for us and provides for us. Neither death nor life, nor, he says, nor angels, nor principalities or powers can separate us from the love of Christ. Angels would not separate us from the love of Christ. Principalities, powers, if we take those together to be categories of fallen angels, demons, they certainly don't have the power to separate us from the love of Christ. Some people think the additional word powers there might be just those in authority. Either way, now the principalities, powers, no, no one in authority has the ability to separate us from the love of Christ. I, I would take it to be more on, on the line of angelic beings, angels, principalities, powers. He says, nor things present, nor things to come. 
Again, everything we are experiencing now or will experience can't separate us from the love of God in Christ. Things present nor things to come. Verse 39, nor height nor depth. Uh, these are actually in the context astrological terms that we've been familiar with those in Paul's day. So height really refers to the high point of the zenith of a star's path in the sky, the depth at the low point. So maybe the, from the heights to the depth, right? From the, from the, from the uh, beginning to the end of life's path, perhaps, is the, the picture. In infinity, maybe. Of the height of heaven. I mean, it's just endless in every direction. Nothing can separate us, no the height nor depth. Nor any other created thing. Again, no one or no thing in existence in the entire universe shall be able to separate us from those uh, from the love of Christ, those who have been called. Nothing shall be able to separate us who are the called, according to God's purpose, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, it's just a tremendous conclusion, right? Amen. It's really good. So what shall we say to these things? God's for us, he's against us. Again, the greatness of God's love for us in Christ has been made known. And God's awesome act of mercy and love upon Calvary's cross. God sends Christ to die in our place that we might be saved from our sin, reconciled unto him forever. And there's nothing or no one higher in the universe, no one greater than God, no one greater than God's love, so nothing can separate us from him. Why? Not because of us, but because of Christ. He's always the issue. The question is, do you know these things? Are you personally persuaded by the truth? Are you personally convinced of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for you, God's love for you through Christ? Because you have to know him. Not just know about him, but you have to know him. You have to repent and place your faith in him. Just like I said this morning, Abraham believed, Abraham believed God and God counted him to righteousness. We have to believe what God says to be true. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Just as it is written, for all your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, and all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And everybody said... Amen. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for this wonderful truth. Thankful for the time we've studied all these many months now in the book of uh, Romans, especially this eighth chapter. And we're just so thankful that you have uh, secured our eternal salvation. We have confidence not in us, but all in you, all in Christ. We praise you, uh, the King of heaven. To your feet, our tribute bring, ransom healed, restored, forgiven. Evermore, your praises sing. We're thankful that we'll be part of that end time and part of that eternal anthem of praise before the throne, praising you, our God, and praising Christ, the Savior. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for our eternal security in Christ. Thank you for this great day of worship we've had this morning and this evening. And we just stand in awe of you and your love for us. And we praise your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.